Please remain standing as we continue worship with a reading from John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as soon as you say hello to someone. So, and then last but not least, uh, you're seeing a lot of new faces up here this week. Uh, Chris is already gone. He's went to shoot a wedding. So, uh, we will be having our resident Reverend Gary Abraham speak this morning. And yesterday celebrated his 96th birthday. Um, <laughs> he did celebrate a birthday yesterday, and he didn't make me promise, so I said that I would say it anyways. So make sure you wish him happy birthday. Go ahead, Gary. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and good morning, everybody. Not 96, but I will tell you, very proud, 56 years old yesterday. So I know a lot of you are going, what? You know, you've got to be in your 30s, but you know, it's just a lot of hard work and a great diet. Uh, that's all that is. Um, I kind of been here probably longer than most people. I think other than Pastor Scott and maybe Ann Denton and Diana Preston, I think I've been, I don't see anybody else in this church that's been here as long as I have. So it's been nearly 25 years, and it's been incredible. It's been an incredible journey. So those of you who have heard me speak before know that I've been given the liberty to, you know, just speak on whatever I want to speak on. You know, Scott says, well, Gary, you know, can you do a message this week? I say, sure. You know, I got a bunch of things in the hopper, and, you know, I'll just kind of flush something out, you know, and have something ready. But we've been in a series on maturity, and I did not have that luxury this time. So, you know, it's funny. Chris came to me last week and said, so are you going to, you know, continue with the theme of maturity being optional, or are you going to, you know, just pull something from your hopper? 
I said, oh, I have a choice? I said, well, the executive pastor didn't give me a choice. He said that you are speaking on maturity. And I said, well, Scott, I've always just kind of fleshed something out. He said, it's time for you to grow up. Be mature. Become mature. Grow up, you know, and do it. I said, yes, sir. So again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Gary. Been coming to the church for a minute. And uh, I'm always honored and privileged to have an opportunity, you know, to, to speak to what I determine is God's family. And I'm sure God feels the same way. So um, we've been in this whole series about maturity, and the whole theme is that maturity is optional. It's not going to happen um, by us not doing anything. We can't just accept Jesus as our Savior and expect to grow as Christians. So there's certain disciplines, there's certain cadences and a rhythm to our lives that we should adopt in order to become mature. And Chris has, you know, hit on a bunch of those, Mike and Josh. And, and those things are important and are very important. And I want to uh, summarize four very important points that Chris brought up last week that kind of ministered to me and, and convicted me. And hopefully you guys took notes. And if you didn't, you know, I'm here, so you will take notes, you know, so you remember him. So you're going to hear him again. Uh, the first thing is he def uh, defined worship. And he said worship is seeing and responding to God's great worth by surrendering your life. And the point he made is that if you really see what God's great worth is, if you really understand and can internalize that, there is nothing less than complete and total surrender that, that we, would, we would give back to God. Because God is that good and his, his worth is that great. The second point, he said, is in order to really experience God in the way that we we need to, that we have to see God as more worthy, more desirable, and more beautiful than anything else in this world, and that he should be the object of our worship. Um, if you think about that, uh, it really makes a lot of sense. Whatever is beautiful to us, is worthy, is important, you know, is desirable, that is what we pursue. And if God indeed is that, that person, you know, that deity, that, that entity that we seek, that's what, you know, we would pursue him, and he, everything about him would be, would be what attracts us. The other thing he said is that the object of our worship will dictate the depth of our maturity. And that is very, very profound. The object of what we worship will dictate the depth of our maturity. So, again, if God is what we're worshiping, that is going to determine, you know, how mature we are because we would want all the things of God to adopt his character, to adopt his goodness and everything about him. And the last point he made, which was the really convicting piece to me, he said that anything in your life, that you can adjust your life to pursue anything in it and you will become that thing. And the point there was that if we adjust our lives to pursue God, we would become a godly person. So the natural question that, that came to me was, is my life adjusted to pursue God? Or are there other things that my life is adjusted to, to pursue? And quite frankly, since we're family and you know, we're, all, you know, we're all Christian folks and we're transparent in here, my, my answer didn't make me feel so great, to be honest. Because while I come to church on Sunday and I, you know, quiet time and and I, I think I, I try to do a lot of, uh, you know, and live the right way, and, and, I, and I do love God. But when I looked at my life, you know, in general, it's like there's so much more I could be doing. There's so much, you know, I could really pursue God much more uh, strongly than, than I am. 
And maybe if you guys are as honest as I am, maybe you guys kind of felt the same way. A few people came up and, and we prayed, and I, I was up on the prayer team last week, and I, I prayed for somebody, and, and quite honestly, they ended up praying for me because I needed it as well, and, and, and I asked for it. So the question is, if, we, if, if all of these things, you know, if we really see God for who he is, and we really, you know, are going to respond to him based on his great worth, if we really see him as more worthy and more desirable and more beautiful, if he's the object of our worship, if we adjust our lives to pursue God, to become godly, what does that really look like? What does that look like? And that's what I want to spend a few minutes talking about um, today. What does it really look like? And this is all wrapped up under the, the title of maturity. What does a mature Christian life look like if we, you know, if we really pursue God and see God for all that he really is? Well, it may look like us here today on Sunday morning, you know, that we got up and sacrificed TV and, you know, maybe a nice hot breakfast or sleep or something, you know, to be here. It, it may look like that. You know, that we're real mature Christians, right? Because we get up and go to church on Sunday mornings. Maybe that's the answer. What does it really look like in your daily life, though? You know, does it look like, you know, leading a small group, maybe being a part of a small group? You know, is that what Christian maturity is really about? Or, you know, maybe it looks like quoting scripture, you know, or reciting some well-known spiritual phrase. You know, I grew up, people would say like, oh, how you doing this morning, Gary? I say, oh, I'm doing great because God is good. And if I say God is good, you say all the time. And I say all the time. I mean, we're real mature Christians. We can close the book and go home, right? Because maybe that's what Christian maturity is all about, right? You know, um, or maybe it looks like what I'm doing right here, right now, right? That I'm, uh, you know, I'm comfortable speaking in public and I got a little bit of knowledge and I can kind of, you know, articulate what I mean. Maybe that's what it is. I can actually deliver a sermon or a message, you know, to, to God's people or maybe not to God's people. Is that what Christian maturity looks like, you know? Or maybe, maybe it actually looks like being well-versed in biblical facts, you know, and trivia because we know the Bible, we know scripture inside out, and we can even present ourselves as, you know, biblical scholars. Like if I were to tell you, if I divided the room in, in, in two halves, if I say this side of the room, if I said, I'm quoting John 3:16, for God so, oh, see, see, they know, they know. Now, if I come over here and I said, so God so loved the world that he gave. gave. Look, we don't need to be here today. We don't need to be here today. We're all mature Christians. We got it all together because we can, we, we not only can uh, uh, talk the talk, we can walk the walk, right? Well, I'm here to tell you that the Christian life and maturity really is about walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Amen. So the question is, do all these things that I talked about, small group, you know, maybe even delivering a sermon, you know, uh, quoting scripture, you know, all these things, do they show how mature you are? And really the answer is no. The answer is no. All these habits or acts or practices or routines they don't show, they don't, they definitely don't show God that we're mature. They definitely don't show the world out there that's lost that we're mature. And I'm not saying that these things aren't important because I think those things are necessary for your spiritual growth. But I will submit to you that those things do not show that you've grown. 
In other words, you can do all of those things and they can be part of your daily routine, but nobody will know that, that, that you've grown. So how do we get, how do we know that, we're, that we've grown? How do we know what is it that we need besides those things, you know, to show the world and to, you know, to show God that we're really, you know, getting closer and closer to a lifestyle of Jesus? And I won't ask that question because I, I don't expect you to answer that question, but what I did is I looked at my own life and I said, you know, I got all of these things going on, but there's gotta be some, something binding, overarching, some substance, if you will, that kind of you know, puts all these practices you know, together that shows that I'm maturing spiritually day in and day out. And what I'm here to tell you today is that that overarching substance, that, you know, that binding characteristic is one thing, and it's love. Plain and simple, it's love. Because without love, none of the things that we're doing, none of the Bible studies, none of the, you know, the, the preaching, you know, none of the small groups, you know, none of the scripture, you know, um, um, memory, none of that means anything. None of that shows anybody. None of that is projecting what Jesus was really about, which is love. So what I say, I think we all possess a certain amount of love, probably a lot of love, a lot of us. The problem is, who is the object of that love? Another very, very piercing question. If I were to ask you today, like, who do you love the most? If we're really, really honest, I think we all would answer that question, this, we'd all have the same answer. And, and what would that answer be? Me. That's who I love the most. And I think that's very evident by, by our life and everything that we do. You know, So self-love above, above all else is what rules the world today. Most of our problems, most of the strife, you know, the conflicts in this world is really, you know, birthed out of self-love. You know, what I need, what I want, what I have to do is way more important and overrides anything else that's going on with anybody else because it's all about me. My comfort, my feelings, my happiness, my survival, my money, my time, everything is about me. And so when you think about it, your whole life, you know, having, looking at yourself and making everything about you, no wonder everybody else gets shut out. Now, to some degree, you know, some of us, you know, take this a step further. You know, if you don't think like I think, if you don't like to do the things that I do, you know, if you don't like the music that I like, if you don't, you know, hang out with the type of people that I hang out, you have no room in my life. Some of us just say, no, nah, everybody's good as long as you never get in my way. Stay out of my way, let me do what I want to do, and, and you're good. So from the focus scripture today that Mike read, I'm going to reread verses 9 uh, through 13. And this is from John chapter 15. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is Jesus speaking. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friend. 
What Jesus is saying here is that the object of our love ought to be God. He is like the intermediary between us and God. He says, as I love God, I want you to love others. And if you love me, you know you're going to keep my commands. Now, what are, what are Jesus' commands? Now, I'm not going to go here and tell you, you know, all the Ten Commandments, one, two, three, four, five. But if you go to the, if, if you forget about the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, Jesus kind of provided this new covenant for us. And Mark 12:30 says it this way. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than this. In Matthew 22, uh, the way that that scripture, you know, is presented to us, it says that one of the, the, Jesus was teaching among the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and one of the so-called experts of the law, uh, you know, a Pharisee, tried to trick Jesus. And he said, you know, oh, Jesus, you know, what, what is the greatest commandment? And, of course, he was, you know, trying to get Jesus, you know, to, to answer according to, you know, the law, the Old Testament doctrine. And Jesus replied and said the same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He said this is the first and the greatest commandment, which is to love God, you know, with everything that we are. And then he said, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he, then he goes on to say, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus wrapped up, like, Old Testament doctrine, Old Testament laws and everything, thou should not kill, steal, you know, and do all of that, and said everything, all of those, you know, hang on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, an interesting thing, we all just said, who do we love, you know, the most, and it's us. But nothing in Jesus' teaching here has said, has mentioned us. Jesus says, love God and love others. That's what we're to do. So what we need to do is take our eyes off ourselves and put our eyes on those in need out there, on other people. You know, a little humility, you know, in our life. Um, uh, Micah 6.8, Old Testament verse. I don't know how many of you even know there's a book of Micah in the Old Testament. But there is. This is how it's represented in, uh, in Micah 6.8. And I think, we I think we have that up there. Uh, Micah 6.8 reads, He's a sh He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And I want to kind of dissect that verse. And kind of, I did a lot of research on this to kind of, you know, kind of put it in layman's terms, like what that really means and how that applies to our life. To act justly means that you will do what is morally right or fair. This is not just something that we, you talk about because it goes beyond mere words. It's also not something that you can require of, you can just require it of others. You know, you have to do it yourself. To act justly is something you must commit to, to doing yourself. The challenge is in this committing to doing what is morally right and fair in every circumstance, even when it is not popular. While many may say that, you know, say this with their mouth, I think we have seen that actions do not follow. And I want to kind of interject a little personal story that, quite honestly, I was embarrassed by how I even went about this. But over the last several months, uh, I had been going through some job difficulty 
not difficulty, just very unhappy on my job. And I'm a very happy, bubbly person, kind of always positive. But I really, my job situation was holding me down because I was very miserable and not happy in my job at all. And so I did what Christians do. I prayed about it and kept on waiting for God to kind of deliver me, and I was looking for another job. And so I got up one morning, and I said, you know what? I'm calling my boss. I can't do this anymore. So I, I thought I was quitting. You know, I said, look, I can't do this anymore. Whatever you guys decide is fine. I'm not going to work this job anymore. And so my boss says, like, oh, well, let us talk about it. I said, no, 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 you don't get it. We're not talking about anything. I'm done. You know, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, and he says, well, you know, I'll call you back. I say, okay, it's fine. Do what you want to do. Two days later, he calls me, and he says, uh, he says, well, we thought about it, and what we'll do is we'll put you on the bench. I work for a consulting company in IT, and when you're on the bench, that's like heaven in IT. So you're on the bench. They kind of look for another assignment for you, and you get paid. And so for, like, probably four or five weeks, you know, I, was, I actually was experiencing heaven on earth. I had nothing to do. <laughs> I had nothing to do, but every other week, you know, my, my paycheck came in. So in the meantime, I'm looking for a job and interviewing, and I found a job. And so my question, and this is the moral dilemma, my question is, well, I can sit here on the bench and wait till this company, you know, they'll pay me every two weeks, you know, I'll get my bonus, they'll do everything, you know, I'm, they, they don't know the difference, you know, I can work this other job, get a second paycheck, and everything will be good. And so... Funny enough, I, something didn't sit well with me in my spirit. You know, ah, that's not right, you know. But, you know, I'm like, well, maybe if I just don't say anything, you know, uh, everything will be okay. And so I was supposed to start my new job, you know, whatever the date was. And so I'm still on the bench kind of wrestling with it. So what do I do? I go talk to a few people, you know, and people are like, oh, man, you got to get paid, you know, two jobs, you know, they don't know anything. Plus, and there's a backstory to why I was miserable in my job. The company put me in a position to fail and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, long story short, I, in my mind, tried to justify why it was okay to not say anything and to get, and I'll just be honest. It was about $50,000 on the line if I keep my mouth shut for three weeks because I had a bonus that I had earned that was coming and paychecks, okay? And so I'm like, wow, what could I do with that? And I justified in my mind, well, you know what? I tithe, I'm gonna give some to the church, it'll benefit the church, it's gonna do, you know? And so, and you know, and there was, you know, a whole faction of people telling me, like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? People are even telling me, you gotta feed your family, you know? <laughs> And so, um, but something in my spirit, you know, didn't, didn't sit right. And so before I started my new job, I, you know, I was talking to a friend and he was like, well, Gary, I think you need to pray about this. And I said, you know what? I really don't. I said, I don't need to, I don't need to pray about it. And not because I want the money. I said, no, I really want the money, but I don't need to pray about it because I already know it's wrong. So why, why, why would I need to pray about something I already know is wrong, you know? And so I picked up the phone, called my boss, and I said, look, I found another job. I don't know what you, you know, this whole bench thing. I know you guys are looking, but, you know, I'm done. I'm going to move on to my other job. My boss said, like, are you sure? i like, yeah, I'm sure. He says, well, you can go on leave for, for leave without pay for 60 days. We want to make sure that, that you're okay, you know, that you, you, you really want to make this move. And I said, oh, I'm sure. I want to make the move. I don't, you know, I'm done. And he says, well, would you mind if we put you on leave without pay? So you do what you want. I just don't want you guys to be adversely affected by this. So I'm done. He said, okay. So I was done with them, right? So I'm on leave without pay. There's nothing there other than 
they're still paying their, my portion of health insurance. I moved on to my new job. So I was done, you know, with the company, moved on to my new job. As God would have it, 60 days later or whatever, you know, my boss calls and goes like, okay, you know, are you still sure you don't want to work here? I'm like, nope, I'm settled in my new gig, not going to work there. He said, okay, we'll start separation proceedings. Long story short, they weren't supposed to give me my bonus because you have to be on the payroll to get the bonus and all of that. So while I didn't get my paychecks all the way through, God provided me the bonus anyway, you know. And so all the people that were telling me, like, you got to feed your family, you got to do this, and why I even talk to those people, I have no idea. You know, well, I do have an idea because I wanted the money, let's be honest, okay. So, uh, um, but, but, but God took care of me. But acting justly, so that whole story is like acting justly, doing what is morally right or fair. And when I look back on it, I mean, the fact that I actually, you know, considered not doing the right thing was kind of discouraging to me, just being honest, okay? But it all worked out. The second thing that verse, uh, that Micah 6.8 talks about, it says, love mercy. Remember, what does God require of you? You know, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does loving mercy mean? Love mercy implies a joint loyalty and faithfulness to the love of God, which is demonstrated in a commitment to love others. The word mercy is from the Hebrew word hest, which implies a loyal commitment that flows out of love. This is what motivates God's faithfulness to you and should be the reason you are faithful to him. One way that that is demonstrated is in how you love others. So it's real interesting to me that being Christians, um, and we, we should be about love, and there are so many instances out there in the world today that the people that are identified as Christians and have no problem telling you that they're Christians, what they project out to the masses is anything but love. It's exclusionary, it's, it's this self-love, you know, that, that, that we talked about earlier. But loving mercy is doing what, doing to others or doing for others what God has already done for you. You know, is, is sharing Jesus' love, you know, and Jesus' love was, you know, above all else, right? He gave his very life so that we could have a second chance, you know, to spend eternity with God. That's what Christian love should be about. But the more I look out and the more, and quite frankly, not to be critical, but the more I even hear, you know, Christian people speak, it, it's really discouraging. And not, I mean, I hear some great, great Christian speakers, and a lot of them are right on point, but a lot of what we're projecting out there in the world is not what Jesus, what Jesus would, would, would have us do. Um, the last thing, to walk humbly uh, with our Lord. To walk humbly is to walk carefully before God, being mindful of how you live before him. The one who walks humbly with the Lord does so modestly and without arrogance. Um, when you sum up the whole verse, Micah 6, 8, it is a call to an active faith that is lived out with actions and interactions with others and not just with words. Um, one Bible commentator, uh, Kenneth Barker, he summed up the verse this way. He said, thus, this saying is not an invitation, an invitation in lieu of the gospel to save oneself by kindly acts of equity and fairness. It is instead a call for the natural consequence of truly forgiven men and women, it's me and you, to demonstrate the reality of their faith 
by living it out in the marketplace. Such living would be accompanied with acts and deeds of mercy, justice, and giving of oneself for the orphan, the widow, and the poor. The orphan, the widow, and the poor. We can take those, those words literally, which I think we should in a lot of cases, but I think we could take it figuratively too. A lot of times the orphan, the widow, the poor are those that are just downtrodden that have not, the disenfranchised. How much time are we given to those people in thought, in word, and in deed? That's my conviction. Not enough is my answer. Because it's all, it's all about me. It's all about me. We have been blessed with so much. And the question is, are we willing to bless others with our time, with our talents, you know, just with our resources, you know? Is it, you know, housing? You know, you got an extra room in your house, but yeah, somebody needs somewhere to stay for the weekend, but not in my house, you know, they might be dirty. You know, they might not keep my house like I would have it kept. You know, is it, you know, a car, you know? Is it, you know, financial resources? You know, is it your time? You know, is it just, you know, a, a word of prayer? There's so many opportunities out there that we make everything about us, about our comfort and about what, what would be comfortable to us when Jesus has shown us and demonstrated that, no, it's not about you. It's really, you know, about, about carrying out my mission, you know, and, and my mandate. And God's mandate is love. God's mandate is love. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Very interesting verse. I can come to church every Sunday. I can memorize scripture. I can go to small group. I can preach. None of that, Jesus says, will show that I'm his disciple. The one thing he does says, he says, by this, everyone will know that you're my, my disciples if you love one another. So church, I want to challenge you that there's got to be a, just like there's a cadence in our kind of personal life, maybe, you know, you're doing the quiet times and the Bible studies and the small groups and you know, and coming to church frequently and, and all of those things which are important, you know, which is important for growth, I want to challenge you that we need to step up our game on loving other people. And the main reason for that is because Jesus commands it. Jesus commands that we love other people, and he's very, very serious about it. I don't care if they're different than you, different race, different socioeconomic background, you know, whatever it is, we got to step up our game and love people. Because by that, that's how the world is going to know that we are disciples of Jesus. And by that, that's going to open up so many more doors in order to share, you know, with other people, you know, about this gospel, you know, that we believe in. Another verse, John chapter 14, I'm going to read verse 15 and verses 23 to 24. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And again, what are Jesus' commands? 
Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 23, in answering a question, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me, this is the opposite, will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father. So I think it's safe to say by now that Jesus is serious about this, loving him and loving other people. He's very serious about it, and so I think we ought to take it seriously too. I think we're all uh, familiar with the parable of the sheep and the goat. Maybe, maybe not. Well, based on how you guys answered, you know, the, the questions before, of course you guys are, because you all, everyone's mature and we read the Bible and we, we know all of this stuff. But I, I think it's, I think it'll be uh, prudent for me to read this and just remind you in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31, uh, starting in verse 31, what the whole parable of the sheep and the goat is about. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right. You guys are the sheep. And he put the goats on the left. You guys are the goats. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and gave you something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous, which is the people on my right here, you know, they'll answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will look to those on the left. Yeah, that's the Dentons and everybody over here. Yeah, he'll say, he'll say, depart from me, you who are cursed, and the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. You see, people, every day when we leave our homes and pursue our personal life and whatever it is, you know, work, hobbies, whatever it is, every single day we have an opportunity to spread and to share the love of God with other people. The question is, do we have the conviction or the courage to do it? It's as simple as that. There are opportunities galore all over the place because nobody out there cares that you know scripture. Nobody out there cares that you lead a Bible study. Nobody out there cares that you know that you, you know, you're very well-schooled in biblical trivia. Nobody cares. What they care about is that you care about them. 
That's what the love of Jesus is. And if you guys are like me, and you've taken an internal look at your life, you would be just devastated in how many opportunities that we've let slip by, all because we aren't willing to sacrifice just a little bit of what we have for the good of other people. But even more importantly, it's in so doing, not only are we sharing the love of Christ with them, we are pleasing the God that we serve. That's what he demands of us. That's his mandate. That's what God wants of his people. God doesn't talk about self-love. Jesus doesn't talk about self-love. Jesus doesn't say anything about taking care of you. He talks about taking care of others, blessing others, sharing with others. So my challenge to you today is to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put our eyes on others. Walk humbly with God. Love mercy. Act justly. I'm going to close by reading uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is something that we're all familiar with. But I want to read this fairly deliberately because I want us to let these words soak into our soul. This you typically hear at weddings or, you know, stuff like that. And I think what God wants to share with us today is like, no, it's not so much just weddings, you know, and occasions, but that we need to recognize what love is and it needs to be part of our daily life. First Corinthians chapter 13, I'm just going to read through verse 8. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what God is calling us to do, is to love him first and foremost. And if we do so, we're going to obey his commands and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We read earlier that greater love has no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. That's the ultimate goal. I don't know if I'm there yet. But what, what, even if we backed off of that a little bit, okay, I may not die for you, but I'll just start by giving up a little for you. 
I'll just start by, you know, maybe sacrificing, you know, a few dollars, time, other resources. You know, even taking my mind off myself and all the things going on in my life to be as concerned or more concerned about what's going on in your life. And not just asking about that concern, but genuinely meeting that need if, if you know, if that need arises. Let's pray. Father God, I think you've made it very clear to us this morning what your mandate on our life is, Lord. Lord, when we adopt all the disciplines of growing in the faith, I pray that we don't do that, Father, simply as routine, as a certain cadence to our life, Lord. But Lord, that we would bind that with love. That God, that the reason that we do these things, that we go to church, that we read your word, Father, is to draw closer and closer onto you so that we can be like Jesus. And Jesus was about love. Jesus is love. God, help us to take our eyes off of ourselves. Help us to look at all your creation, Father, and all your children, Father, as being more important even than ourselves, Lord. Help us to have a singular mission, Father, as we walk the rest of our journey, to do the things, Father, that are important to you, to be about your business, to be about the walk of Jesus, who laid his very life on the line for each and every one of us, Lord. That is love, Lord. That is love. Help us to understand, Lord, that if, if we're not giving up something, that we would question ourselves, Father, that, you know, are we loving with the kind of love, Father, that you, that you, uh, that you mandate? Father, you never said this life would be easy. But we know, Father, that just being connected to you, Father, that with with your power and your strength and your love for us, Father, that you can guide us down this, this journey. And that, Father, and that we would be fruitful, Father, and that people will rejoice. Angels will rejoice in heaven, Father, as we live our lives and we bring more and more people into your loving arms, your loving kindness, Father, your loving goodness, Father, that your kingdom will be built off of the love that we show for others. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People, we're here because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And as people of God, we need to, just as Jesus has done for us, we need to, we need to do for others. So I challenge you. I challenge you that, you know, as you leave here today, the to make, you know, the concerns of others part of your, your daily cadence of life. Maybe small random acts of kindness, you know, maybe even just a phone call. Let somebody know you're thinking about them. But there's so many ways that we can bless others, I think we're, we're not even scratching the surface. 
So let's go out and be the church. Let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. If you need prayer, you come up. Other than that, after prayer, church would be dismissed. Uh, have a great week. Father God, in the name of Jesus, Father, the words that have been spoken here today, Father, the songs that have been played here today, Father, maybe even in a moment of silence or a hug that has been shared today, Father, my sincere prayer is that it would bring somebody closer onto you, Father. Lord God, we love you. And we don't just say that in words, Father. My prayer is that we would go out and do the things, Father, that Jesus showed us how to do, Father, when it comes to loving people, Father. Father, in order for us to be mature Christians, Lord, we need to do the things. We need to, be, we need to put into practice, Father, all that we know. Father, knowledge in and of itself means nothing, Lord, if we're not sharing it and showing it to your children out there. Forgive us, Lord, for all the times that we've lived for ourselves. Father, just plant a deep desire in our hearts, Father, for the things that you desire in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.